0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to Pages of HR. I'm your host, Bianca Heron, lead editor at HR Daily Advisor. This podcast provides insightful conversations about HR related books with the writers who create them. By the end of these conversations, we hope that you'll have actionable insights for your business, best practices to tap, and new information to ponder. Today, it's more important than ever for CEOs and HR managers to show their emotions at work and be vulnerable with their employees. If you aren't sure what to do or, quite frankly, where to start, you're in for a special treat today. I'm joined by Laura Putnam, workplace well-being expert, international public speaker, CEO and founder of Motion Infusion and creator of Managers on the Move, a leading well-being provider. She is also the author of Workplace Wellness That Works, And it's all about why CEOs should show their emotions and be vulnerable with their employees. Laura has also worked extensively with employers to improve workplace well-being for years and strongly believes that leaders who are compassionate, caring, and vulnerable tend to create a workplace culture where employees feel safe, secure, and heard, ultimately creating a workplace culture that allows them to thrive. And of course, that's what today's workplace, one of the many things it's all about. Laura, welcome to the show. How are you?
1: Thank you so much, Bianca. I'm great. It's so nice to be with you.
0: Absolutely. Of course, I'm super excited. Um, We're going to just delve right into things here. Can you please tell me what inspired you to write this timely book?
1: Well, I was very lucky in that the publisher actually approached me, and it's one of these things that I had always thought in the back of my mind I would write a book, but having the publisher approach me in the first place made that a whole lot easier. And so I, I really wanted to be able to share my message with a broader audience. And so I'm so grateful to have this book out on the market.
0: Absolutely. And before we delve straight into the to the book here, what ignited your flame, excuse me, if you will, uh, that le- led you down this class uh, with well-being and your expertise, expertise, excuse me. As
1: indicated by the name of my company, which is Motion Infusion is what I characterize as a biological, cultural mismatch. That is, we are born to move, but we are effectively told to sit. We are born to be well, but we live in a culture that really pushes us toward not being well. And um, so I really experienced that in my own life where I had... Grown up being physically active. I was a competitive gymnast growing up. I was a, a member of the Stanford women's gymnastics team. I'd kind of always been in motion. And then I joined the workforce and I couldn't believe how much sitting you had to do to, to, to be part of, uh, uh, of the t- today's modern workforce. And so, so much of my work has really been around unraveling this biological cultural mismatch. To really, more authentically support well-being for all.
0: Wow, I love that. That's amazing. That's amazing. There, we're going to delve into the ex- excerpt here. Excuse me, uh, you prepared an excerpt, correct? Mm-hmm. I did. Absolutely. Let's just. I'm. I'm super excited. Let's delve into that. Uh, would you mind reading your excerpt, please?
1: You bet. So this is actually at the opening of my book. Wellness at its core is about getting back to doing what we naturally do. Increasingly, however, we're being culturally asked to do things that we're not biologically designed to do. We're born to move, but we're culturally mandated to sit. We're biologically programmed to eat whole foods, but our busy schedules and toxic, toxic environments prompt us to eat processed foods that are immediately gratifying but never satisfying we're hardwired to alternate stress with relaxation but the society we live in idolizes being busy and always on the go we're born to be with others but many of us are feeling isolated in a sea of hard driving competition despite our ever-expanding virtual social networks on Facebook and LinkedIn. We live in a world that exerts pressure to be available 24-7 and dishes up professional demands that are ever more unrelenting, with less time to rest and replenish. It is no wonder that so many of us are feeling depleted and worn out. In this petri dish of biological cultural mismatches, workplace wellness initiatives have been gaining both popularity and notoriety. But we might say that workplace wellness is very simply any organized effort to support employees in being more human at work, which includes moving more, eating more natural foods, finding balance, building meaningful connections, and working toward a higher purpose. Done well, workplace wellness has the potential to offset the ill effects of the increasingly demanding and toxic environment and culture that we live in. Done poorly, workplace wellness can feel like another top-down compliance initiative that has little to do with well-being and everything to do with checking boxes and taking tests. Workplace wellness should not be complicated and controversial, and yet it has become just that. In truth, there are a number of really simple, inexpensive practices that any organization and any person within the organization can do to create an oasis at work that nurtures well-being and benefits the bottom line. Every organization already has the capacity and the resources right now to achieve workplace wellness that works. This is exactly what this book is about.
0: I love that. That was amazing. One, thank you for reading that uh, beautifully uh, expressed and of course said, I love so many things there. And of course, here's that excitement bubbling up and out here, right? Um, <laughs> being more human at work, building connections, of course, being flexible, having a flexibility and of course, motion and movement. All things that, of course, we know that are important, uh, but may not have always done. Of course, like you said, in your experience, that was the case as well. But it's, but like you said, it's getting back to what we naturally do. Uh, and I think that ties in extremely well with COVID and the unfortunate pandemic as well. Finding out, you know what, this is what I thought worked, but now after enjoying this, right? now i know that something else uh is absolutely necessary and needed and of course in the workplace wellness is extremely top of mind uh and of course at the forefront so laura you're right on par here you're right on par
1: well thank you and i think that you know a silver lining with the pandemic and all that has come with it because of course it's not just the pandemic but it is things like societal reckoning with systemic racism it is um all the natural disasters that we are navigating, it's the financial distress, Uh, there's the war in Ukraine and and the prospect, are we looking at a a world war and and detonation of a nuclear weapon? I mean, talk about living in an age of anxiety and um, pressure. It's it's no wonder that we are all feeling the way that we are. And and we might even say that the pandemic and all that has come with it has, um, that the toll on our mental health is the second act of the pandemic and all that has come with it. So it is more important than ever that every organization and every leader within the organization really steps up to meet the moment to really um, appreciate their people, not just for what they do, but for who they are as human beings. And I think that so often we frame up wellness, workplace wellness, in terms of bells and whistles, as opposed to it really being about human to human connections, and really um, that creating that culture of care.
0: Absolutely. And I'm, again, one chills uh, with what you just said. Thank you so much for that chills running up and down over here over my arms. Uh, But we're going to Break down uh, this a little bit uh, with a few questions here, and especially under the umbrella of a culture of care, I love that. We know that HR managers uh, and CEOs, of course, should lead by example, uh, and and of course need to lead by example. Uh, but many people, again, as I expressed earlier, we don't know what they don't know what to start. Uh, why do CEOs and HR managers need to lead by example if they wish to create a workplace culture? That is compassionate, caring, and vulnerable.
1: Well, Bianca, I call this when it comes to workplace well-being. Actually, working, I call this "I want to see my boss in spandex" phenomenon, or maybe not. But the point being, you know, everybody wants to see their leaders actually in their in the re- arena with them, trying um, as much as they are, and um, it's not about being a perfect role model. It's actually about being an imperfect one because when leaders and managers model not just the effort to engage with their well-being, but their imperfect efforts, it creates a pathway for everyone else to also imperfectly engage with their well-being. So often, I think a lot of these Leaders and and team leaders, they think, oh, you know, for for me to be a well a, a role model of wellness, I have to be a marathon runner or I have to eat a gluten free vegan diet. And it's not to say that those things aren't great, but um, that's not what this is about. This is really about showing vulnerability and sharing openly with one's struggles around it and and sharing the little things. Hey, I just took a walk around the block um, or I took my dog out as you just did just now. And I feel so refreshed now and sharing that openly with their team or sharing things like, gosh, you know, I've been feeling really anxious with, with the headlines that I'm seeing in the news. How are you all feeling? That really creates Uh, that opens the door for team members to feel like that they can show that kind of vulnerability as well.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I love that. So many things there, uh, opening the door to that vulnerability, uh, that compassion, right? Uh, And that care, that's major things. For, For HR managers who may not know how to open a door or aren't prepared to open the door? um, Or or as we said again, where to start? Any advice there? Maybe a a few steps or a few tips that they can take to to get to that space to become that uh, vulnerable leader?
1: Well, I think the first is to start to ask the thorny questions. So I often... We'll share with leaders, and this includes HR leaders as well as executive leaders, the story about one naval ship in one week had three suicides. This was in September of 2019. This then eerily repeated itself in April of 2022. One ship in one week had three suicides. Now, the prevailing approach toward mental health has been one in which the organization and the experts within it, they, quote, identify the individuals at risk and then connect them with the resources that they need. But is this approach actually working? Evidence suggests that it is not. So, for example... Over 97% of large organizations in the U.S. have these so-called employee assistance programs, which are supposed to be serve as those resources for individuals who are, quote, at risk. However, less than 6% of eligible employees are taking advantage of these resources. The question is why? And what the evidence suggests, especially based on this story, is that when we're talking about mental health and well-being at work, it's less about the individual and the extent to which the individual is taking advantage of resources, and more about the workplace itself. So in the case of these naval ships, keep in mind that the Navy has heavily been investing in both mental health and suicide prevention programs. But again, it has come from a place of this, let's provide the the individual resources, as opposed to let's look at the culture itself. Is the culture itself driving people to become suicidal? Is the culture itself driving people toward burnout? And what the research overwhelmingly suggests is that in fact, these mental health issues have more to do with the workplace itself and less to do with the programs that are offered. So, For example, one Gallup study found that the leading causes of burnout are things like perceptions of unfairness, are things like work overload, are things like unreasonable time pressure, these are all cultural issues that are rife in the Navy. This, these are also cultural issues that are rife in most organizations today. And so while yoga programs are great, while meditation programs are great, they cannot stand up to the pressures of having to, for example, do the work of three or having to work with a toxic boss day in and day out. And so the real question that every organization needs to be asking themselves is, is my organization a naval ship in the making? And if it is, what am I as a leader going to do about it? Am I going to have the courage to ask the question in the first place? And then am I going to have the courage to start to uncover some of the root causes of some of these uh, rising rates of burnout and other mental health issues, so that everyone in my organization is healthier. They have a greater sense of emotional well being because they are part of this organization, as opposed to in spite of this organization and its culture.
0: I love that. That was amazing. Thank you for that. And then, naval ship uh, metaphor, it's mind blowing. That's mind blowing. Uh, Thank you for that. I think this its a great segue here. And quite frankly, Laura, I'm going to be honest, you kind of just hit this on the head, but we're going to go there uh, because this is about having employees, I think at the crux of all that, and correct me if I'm wrong or not, but having your employees feel safe, secure, and heard. Why is it more important than ever to create a workplace culture where employees feel safe, secure, and heard?
1: Well, I think no organization can afford to not invest in the well-being of their people and and the well-being of their people in a meaningful way. What today's employees want most, especially in the wake of the pandemic, is connection. So this includes things like connection with others, connection with one's purpose, connection with what matters most, things like having flexibility, things like feeling a sense of dignity at work, things like a sense of belonging, and things like feeling cared for by their employer and by their boss. And so for any organization, for any leader who is not acknowledging this, they are going to be left behind. So in the time of the great resignation and quiet quitting, people are voting with their feet. And that is if, if the organization that they work for is not meeting those deep fundamental needs then people will leave and they will find an organization that is one that does meet those fundamental needs. And furthermore, even if they don't leave the organization, they are going to quietly quit so that those needs are met.
0: Absolutely there. And of course, this also an, another great segue here, which you've already queued uh, me up here, uh, for HR managers and leaders who don't think that uh, employee well-being is critical to their to their business's bottom line. It really is at the end of the day. Totally.
1: Workplace well-being done well. And I want to emphasize that piece, done well, because if you just provide those check-the-box solutions, if anything, it's going to make things worse because people are going to really, people aren't stupid and they'll know, oh, this is workplace wellness that's being done to me as opposed to well-being that's being done for me and with me. But when well-being at work is done well it is not only good for people it is good for the bottom line and it is essential for building a high-performing team so you give me any metrics that matters to your organization whether it's productivity it's profitability it's uh, innovation it's safety it's absenteeism It's presenteeism, whatever it is, customer service. And I will show you how it connects with well-being. And in particular, if you're concerned about retaining and attracting top talent, today's modern worker, they want well-being and they want authentic well-being. And if they don't get it, again, they're going to go elsewhere so that they do get it.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Absolutely, there, Laura, uh, and, and a great tie-in to the book here, "Workplace Wellness That Works." Of course, uh, I'm loving this because it shows you how to assess your organization's needs and craft a plan that actually benefits uh, that company's employees.
1: Absolutely, that's what it really what it's designed to do, and and it's really fundamentally around shifting the mindset from "We're going to do." Workplace well-being as a program, as an as an initiative, as a kind of something that's standalone, that is separate from business as usual, to really reset this as no, this is about shifting the way the work is done, so that because of the way that the work is done, we are all more well because of it.
0: Yes, I love that. I love that and and throughout the book you tailor or uh, excuse me not Taylor but detailed uh, ten steps uh, which of course is the 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 rest of the title as well ten steps to infuse well-being and vitality into any organization
1: that's absolutely right and and the operative word there is infuse so it's about infusing well-being and vitality into everything that we do so the book is really built around three big sections which is, start it as in start the movement then build it and then make it last so to start a movement you need to really engage people on a heart level on an emotional level you need to create excitement and inspiration so this is where we need to think about things like shifting our mindset from expert to agent of change what is it that that someone like Oprah Winfrey does that engages people on a human level so I would argue that Oprah Winfrey has probably done more for our well-being than any expert out there because she captivates people's hearts and minds. That's what this is about. It's about starting with the, what's right, really helping people to build on what they're already doing well. It's about helping people to imagine what's possible. So for example, Maya Angelou once said, my mission in life is not merely to survive, but to fully thrive and to do so with some passion, some compassion, some humor, and some style. That's really what imagining what po- what's possible is. And it's also about uncovering the hidden factors. That is starting to do a deep dive into your culture. Is your organization's way of doing business one in which you are actually sabotaging people's well-being? Are you unwittingly going to be creating a mismatch between your well-intended wellness programs and the larger culture and and if you do have that mismatch you need to know that from the outset and you need to start addressing the culture first and foremost so then we move into building it and, and that really involves things like really getting everybody involved across all departments and at all levels, particularly managers. And then finally, you need to think about how you can make it last. And that's with really optimizing the environment and the culture such that well-being just becomes normal. It's easy and it's just a way of life. We don't even have to think about it. We come to work and we we are naturally push toward our better selves. We're enabled to uh, to be our better selves because of the way the work gets done.
0: Mm-hmm. Getting back to what we naturally do. Is that correct there in the, my assumption there?
1: That is exactly right. This is not rocket science. <laughs> this is just about returning back uh, to, to, to what it means to be human. Um, one of the things, Bianca, that I am so lucky is I've um, I've lived in Africa for almost three years of my life. Uh, first as a little girl, um, I lived with my family in Ethiopia. And then more recently, I lived in Ghana. And when I lived in Ghana, I lived in a small, remote village. And so in my book, I, in my final thoughts, I share every time I travel to remote parts of the world, I am reminded of living a simpler life. And one in which wellness is a way of being that is infused into daily activities. People walk instead of taking their cars. Tasks are manual instead of electronic. Food is grown locally. People go to bed when the sun sets and awake when it rises. And people live and work together as a tight-knit community. This simpler life is, in essence, a reminder of what's possible and how we might better bridge the gap between what we are culturally mandated to do versus what we are biologically programmed to do, bringing us back to where we started at the beginning of the book. The task that lies ahead for all of us is to find ways to integrate these time-tested and wise practices back into our rapidly changing techno-charged world. Maintaining this global perspective and remembrance of cultural traditions may be our greatest hope in coming up with creative solutions to launch and sustain workplace wellness that works in our workplace in our homes, in our communities, and in our world.
0: I love that, I love that. We are born to move, but we are told to sit. That's what I heard. That's
1: right. <laughs> and by the way, that is tentatively the title of my next book.
0: Oh my goodness, okay. We're right on par here, we're here. We're here, Laura, you and I, we're on par here. <laughs> I love it, I love that, I thank you. And I think it all of course still circles back to what you said earlier as, as well again, right? opening that door. And I understand that with opening that door to vulnerability, of course, I can speak about that personally, but also professionally, it's scary. But we can't allow that fear to paralyze us, I think. We've got to move forward. We have to act in spite of that fear. You
1: know, I think we have a lot of these old sayings that we need to put to rest. One of them being that when we come to work, we check our emotions at the door. Yeah. No, no organization can afford to do that today. People are actually wanting to talk about their mental health with their boss and, and with one another and with the leaders. So, for example, one monster intelligence survey found that 91% of Gen Z job seekers, they want to be able to talk about their mental health with their boss. And we know that there are other studies as well showing that people across all generations, they're wanting to be able to have these conversations. And again, it really starts with top leaders showing that vulnerability so that they can create the pathway for others to be able to also show their vulnerability.
0: I love that. And I've got one more question for you, a final question. But before I get there, uh ask you that question, excuse me, Laura, and we've, we've, Touched on a plethora of things here, all beautiful things. Uh, If there was one key takeaway that you hope readers, when they pick up your book and they read it, what would that be that you hope that they take away?
1: Well, I think there's really two things. One is the idea of instead of thinking about starting a program, think about how you might start, build, and sustain a movement. People don't want to be part of yet another program. They want to feel like that they are part of a movement. So what is it that movement builders do that is different from what cogs in the wheel might do? And then I think also the second piece and this is part of building about starting, building and sustaining a movement is to not underestimate the power of small human-to-human kinds of things that we can all do. So when it comes to addressing our crisis of mental health, for example, it's not just about the experts. It's about making the effort. So with small rituals, such as regular check-ins, leaders and team leaders, and even people in, you know, in peer-to-peer connections, uh, people can help to meet the moment in providing a pathway for more authentic connection at work. And that's really what we are all craving at this moment.
0: Absolutely. And my final question for you, Laura, what does your next chapter look like?
1: My next chapter looks like continuing to have conversations with people like yourself with HR leaders, I just got back from Arizona, where I was keynoting for an HR executive leader and retreat. Uh, so for top uh, chief health uh, human resource officers, around this taboo topic of mental health at work, how do we tackle it, and who's responsible? And and really continuing the conversation around we've got to revisit some outdated notions of well-being, things like. Well-being is just a matter of taking personal responsibility and instead really awakening people to the cultural and environmental barriers that we are up against. And even starting to look at some things like wellness privilege. Are you lucky enough to actually be able to engage with your well-being? So, for example, we often hear tips like, well-being is easy. Just get out into nature. Well, let's look at that. 100 million Americans don't have easy access to nature. So we have to start taking this outside-in approach uh, to better addressing well-being. That's my path moving forward is really to to change the narrative, to to really deepen the conversation uh, around well-being. And uh, as part of that, not only do I hope to continue these conversations through these keynotes, through workshops, uh, through conversations like this one, but also with my next book, as I mentioned, tentatively titled Born to Move told to sit.
0: I love that. I love that. Of course, I'm already in line for the, for that one. Uh, and of course, when come back here, we can discuss that as well as as well. Super excited. Laura, it's been such a pleasure chatting with you today. I really appreciate your time.
1: Likewise, Bianca. Thank you so
0: much. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, to our listeners, thank you for tuning in. Remember, you can always follow us on Twitter at HR Pages, and we are also now available on iTunes, Spotify, and Amazon Audible. Again, I'm Bianca Heron. Join us next time when we turn the page.